0: Good morning. We are John and Tracy Schmidt. We recently became members of this church, and we would like to read Psalm 149 and 150. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary.
1: For those joining online as well, welcome. We have the passage that has been read to us, the final Psalms in a two year series in the Psalms. Let's look to our Lord together now in prayer. Our Father, as we're coming before you now, we are so thankful for who you are, thankful for what you have done. You are the Creator. You are the sustainer, as the Bible reminds us. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Father, what we want to do now is to give you all praise and all glory. As we pull together now these Alleluia songs, we want to be an expression from our hearts. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds, shape these wills, as again our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name, amen. He was asked in his latter years if he could do it again, what would he do different? His name was the Duke of Wellington. He was a British military leader. He had defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, and we are told it was not easy to serve under him. Brilliant, demanding, never one to shower praise upon those that were working below, underneath. Yet even Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired. And so in his latter years, a reporter came to him and asked, if anything, what would he do differently? And we're told that Wellington, as his tears began to roll down the cheeks, reflecting upon all that he had seen done through the years, Answered, I would give more praise, quote, unquote. What's interesting is that what you and I are discovering in this passage of scripture we are pulling together is that like Psalms 146, 47, and 48, and now 49 and 150, Each psalm begins and ends with this idea of praise. But what distinguishes these psalms is the fact that this involves that we are to praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it begins, Alleluia, as we've noted in prior weeks, which is praise, that's the alel, and then the Yah's contraction of Yahweh, and so we are praising the Lord. And this stands out now because what we have to do is to fill in the blank where, where the Duke, perhaps, was given opportunity to be able to talk about praise, but something more needs to be expressed. Uh, perhaps we need These words, who else would rocks cry out to worship, whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing, but this joy is mine. With a thousand alleluias, we magnify your name, You alone deserve the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand Alleluia's and a thousand more. Because each of these psalms begins and ends with Alleluia, what I thought we would do is to develop for our study this morning, four significant distinctives that mark a life of Alleluia that help us to better find ways to worship our Lord. Out of chapter, shall we say, Psalm 149, 1 through 4, as you and I, as we begin and end with Alleluia in and through our lives, I want you to note, first of all, the corporate worship, the corporate worship our Lord deserves. Notice how this begins in the Hebrew, Alleluia. Then it begins to develop the whole idea of what a life of Alleluia is all about. And so you and I are though then told this, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, as we've noted in prior weeks, you will not find in the scriptures, sing to the Lord an old song. And so we asked ourselves the question, but why? And the reason is this, that whenever a conqueror had made his way into new territories and was the victor, new roads would be established so that from his capital site he would be able then to move onward and outward into these new territories. But with new territories came a new song. Simultaneously with the engineering of these new roads, somebody would be commissioned to compose a new song in honor of the conqueror and his conquest. Now, the best perspective that we can develop on the whole matter of singing the new song to the Lord, moving from that historical reference to the biblical theology comes out of Psalm 40. Where the choir master, a psalm of David, pens these thoughts for you and for me. I I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And so right now, as you're pondering this, and there's a cry in your heart. Maybe you're in a spiritual state, emotional state, and you're trying to find your way out. He inclines his heart to you. And he hears your cry. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 40. He didn't merely hear the cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. That's not all. Set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. It's beautiful, Psalm 40. But then, in Psalm 40, verse 3, he goes on, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear, and what's the result? Put their trust in the Lord. The person who lives a life of hallelujah is a person who's the composer of the new song. You find new mercies when you're facing new challenges. You find new mercies when you are dealing with new dynamics of relationships, and new jobs, new health concerns. There needs to be a new song that's incorporated to make our allelujah come alive on this journey that God has placed us on. And so here we are in Psalm 149. After this, alleluia, he then develops it and says, Sing to the Lord a new song. And now, because we're talking about corporate worship that our Lord deserves, our first of the four major distinctives, he goes on to say his praise in the assembly of the godly. I say, Well, Gary, um, who's that? It's for all who put their faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. When you reach that point where this whole matter of singing to the Lord a new song, his praise and the assembly of the godly so penetrated your everyday experience, then you can embrace what the challenge is delivered to Israel let Israel be glad in his maker it's astounding isn't it how often the psalms refer to the whole matter of creation and behind the creation stands the creator behind the design stands the designer Maybe it's my science background, I don't know, but I'm always drawn to these these thoughts. We're physicist Sabine Hassenfelder, a research fellow at the Franklin Institute for Advanced Studies in Germany. It has a YouTube channel with over 550,000 subscribers. Interestingly, Dr. Hassenfelder is an atheist. Yet, we are told, she cringes when scientists deny a creator. How do you explain? She cringes when scientists like the late Stephen Hawking and many others make numerous what she considers to be unsubstantiated pronouncements like, quote, there is no possibility for a creator, unquote. Furthermore, she is uncomfortable with, quote, overconfident proclamations like like widely held beliefs on the origin of the universe, the existence of other universes, and unverifiable beliefs. And then she wants scientists to be, quote, mindful of the limitations of our discipline. Sometimes the only scientific answer we can give is we don't know. If therefore, it therefore seems likely to me, she goes on to say, that in our ongoing process of knowledge discovery, theology and science will continue to coexist for a very long time. And that's because science itself is limited. Where science ends, we seek other modes of explanation, such as in theology. And the psalmist with a new song being expressed in the Hosanna of life, where his praise is in the assembly of the godly, listens carefully to the individual who is what I might describe at this point as a seeker, and we want to be able to distinguish between secular seekers and religious seekers, secular unbelievers, religious unbelievers, and be able to address matters intelligently Let Israel be glad you and I are challenged. How, where, why, in his maker. And when we begin to grasp the significance of this, and then we can get our arms around what Lord Kelvin, who once wrote, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to believe in God which is the foundation for all truth. He would go on to be the one who developed the instruments which made the Atlantic Cable possible. And in 1858, he supervised its laying. And on August 5th of 1858, the first message was sent from America to Europe. Europe and America are united by... Telegraphic communication, and as a scientist, I want to say, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And the worshiper that understands the dynamics of this journey we're on, this Hosanna journey where we incorporate new song living into our lives in an old song world. But that's not all. He goes on at this point, the psalmist does, to continue to enjoin, let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Howard Hendricks is with the Lord, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I said, as a boy, I loved to wander over to a nearby park and watch the older men play checkers. And one day, one of them invited me to play. Well, at first, it looked easy. I captured one, and then another of his checkers. But then, suddenly, he took one checker, hopped and skipped right across the board to the border, and yelled at me, King me! And with that king, he proceeded to wipe me off the board. Dr. Hendricks wrote, that day I learned a lot about long range vision. No one minds losing a few checkers if he's headed for king country. Some of us have lost more than a few checkers in life. But you see, the one who died for your sins and my sins had a placard over his head, King of the Jews. And three days later, the sovereign God of the universe, God the Father, validated that statement by raising Christ from the grave. And when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have just entered into king country. In other words, verse 2 pulls together creator and king. Let Israel be glad in his maker and let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. And of course they will, because as Brooke Fraser, now married, Brooke LeGertwood puts it, who else would rocks, cry out to worship and whose glory taught the stars to shine perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing but this joy is mine and with a thousand hallelujahs we magnify your name you alone deserve the glory the honor and the praise lord jesus this song is forever yours a thousand hallelujahs a thousand more it's a new song people It's meant for new song people. But you're up, you see, to verse three. Where you and I are then challenged, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Now, we have to bear in mind that in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses composed an extraordinary song It's the song of Moses. The Bible is filled with music. And what fascinates me is that in verse 2 of Exodus 15, uh, we don't have the word Yahweh, but the contraction of Yah. And it reads literally, Yah is my strength and my song. And I tie that then to Hallelujah. A thousand hallelujahs. And a thousand more, and you know, Moses' sister danced with the tambourine, with the composition of this song. Robin Jones Gunn writes of such a dance, and perhaps as a, a family member of a special needs. Sister, who's now with Jesus, who had Down syndrome. The heart resonates with what's said. She stood a short distance from her guardian at the park this afternoon. Her distinctive features revealing that although her body had blossomed into young adulthood, her mind would always remain a child's. Now, my children ran and jumped and sifted sand through perfect, coordinated fingers, caught up in fighting over a shovel. They didn't notice when the wind changed, but she did. She did. When autumn wind spinning leaves into amber flurries made its way to her, I called my son and jostled my daughter. Time to go. Mom's got a lot to do my rosy-cheeked boy stood tall, watching with wide-eyed fascination. It was the gyrating dance of the Down Syndrome girl, caught up in the joy of the shifting wind, as she scooped up leaves and showered herself with a twirling rain of autumn jubilation. With each twist and hop. She sang deep. They were earthy grunts, but they were canticles of praise, meant only for the creator of this world whose breath causes the leaves to tremble from the trees. Hurry up, let's go, seat belts on. I start the car, but in the rear view mirror, I study her one more time through misty eyes. And then the tears come, the tears are for me, for I am too sophisticated to publicly shout praises to my creator. I need to get out of the car. There's an autumn dance at hand. I need to dance before the creator. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. And you could see Miriam doing so at that point. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people, and he adorns the humble with salvation. And that's an alleluia. That is, you and I, as we begin, and as we end with the alleluia of life, out of verses 1 through 4, you note the corporate worship that our Lord deserves. But secondly, out of 5 down to verse 9, you note furthermore the certain justice that our Lord delivers because you pick it up now in verse verse 5, don't you? In verse 5, let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy in their beds, in their beds, you will find that sometimes when people are overwhelmed with discouragement and despair, what they will do is to retreat to the bedrooms of life, to attempt to escape the realities of life. But you see, when you bring an alleluia into your life journey, it is not an escape from, you know, it's rather an enlistment with a re-engagement, where it's time now to take on life once again, as you uplift that loved one to the Lord, as you as you deal with the challenges of life, but you do so because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who died on your behalf, and where you will find at the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and grace. Find find a meeting point where in verses six and seven let the high praises of god be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands and you say gary two-edged swords how am i to how am i to understand that But when you and I examine very carefully the scriptures, such as Hebrews 4, verse 12, and maybe as well, Revelation 19, we got a better understanding of this matter of the sword. Ah, Jesus told Peter, put away your sword, when he saw the soldiers coming. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's time to take out the sword. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Not to be outdone in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. In that final day, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And now what we will find here in Psalm 149 is that the informing theology of the book of Revelation folds for you and me. We're, notice the T.O.'s here, verse 7, to execute vengeance on their nations, punishments upon the peoples, to bind their kings and chains, and their nobles with fetters of iron, another T.O., to execute on them the judgment written. You say, whoa, I love the idea of a God of grace. You're talking here a God of justice. But then R.C. Sproul has something to say where he wrote, God is never obliged to treat all men equally. Don't ever ask God for justice. You might get it. And then again, we may see non-justice in God, which is mercy, but we never see injustice in God. That's what this world's about. But justice and grace find their meeting point at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Christ came the first time. Grace fully displayed. The second time, justice fully executed. We pull all that together. And what we find thus far is that in this alleluia that we bring to the journey of life, (coughs) we begin... And we end with alleluia, noting the corporate worship our Lord deserves, noting secondly, the certain justice our Lord delivers. Read Revelation 19. But now thirdly, as you've made your way to the final psalm, Psalm 150, note in verses 1 through 2 the absolute greatness our Lord possesses. Praise the Lord. In other words, alleluia in the Hebrew. Praise God in his sanctuary. There's a where. Praise him in his mighty heavens, on earth as it is in heaven. And now we see merger happening here. Sanctuary heavens. But now you move forward and you say, I want to consider who he is, but furthermore, what he has done? Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent His excellent. Greatness and when you and I begin to grasp the significance of that, we're better prepared then to be able to appreciate that, that story that is told repeatedly it was it was september seventeen fifteen the funeral of Louis the Fourteenth held in paris Louis the Fourteenth the man who Said, I am the state, the man who built Versailles, the man who was called the Sun King because of his lavishness of his court, the biographer tells us, who was a more powerful king than Louis XIV? The question was posed. But at the funeral, uh, the room was dark except for one lone candle which illumined the great solid casket that held the remains of the monarch. And at the appointed time, the pastor stood to address the assembled clergy of France. And as he rose, he reached from the pulpit, snuffed out the one candle which had been put there to symbolize the greatness of the king. And then in the darkness came just four words, God only is great. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. You're praising him. And now you're into the final distinctive of the final psalm. Because fourthly, I want you to notice with me the comprehensive ways that our Lord is honored. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Notice the comprehensiveness of the musical instruments combined, brought together to bring glory not to self, but glory to God. And then he digs deep in and says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. as Brooke Victor food would put it, who else would rocks cry out to worship whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing, but this joy is mine. For with a thousand alleluia's we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise, Lord Jesus. This song is forever yours. A thousand alleluia's and a thousand more. As the last verse of the last psalm in the Hebrew reads Alleluia, which we translate Praise the Lord. And so we pull all that together. And now, for the Wellingtons of this world who look back upon life and say, if I could do it again, I'd offer more praise. We would insert a yah into that life experience. It's alleluia. A thousand times over and more Praise the Lord. Thank you for studying Psalms with me. Let's stand together. And now, Father, what we see here is what life is meant to be about. We bring the Yah to life. It's an Alleluia on this journey. For the one who has retreated to the bedroom of life, grappling with despair, despondency, I pray, Lord, they'll reemerge. It's time to engage life. Because the second member of the Trinity engaged life by going to the cross to give us life as he died for our sins. And all we can do is to say hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
0: In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.